As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declare, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thanks so much, Danny. You may be seated. Well, good evening and welcome to Disciples Church. It's so good to see you, good to be with you, and thank you all for making that out on a, uh, a very chilly Valentine's Day. Glad you're able to spend it with us. Um, when you think about the songs that we're singing, um, as Dave mentioned kind of at the front end, when you think about the truth of what it is that we're declaring, the things that we're saying about who God is, his nature, his character, um, it's a reminder that the reason we are able to love one another, the reason we're able to have horizontal relationships with each other, um, that are restored, beautiful, loving, caring, generous, sacrificial, is because of the love that's been demonstrated to us. That God himself is the source of all love, that he is the source of our hope, that he's the source of goodness. And so those are the things that we get to celebrate and remember when we gather together. So thanks so much for being here and welcome to the Disciples Church. My name is Jonathan Mosher and it's my privilege to be able to bring the word um, to you this evening. And so if you're not already there, if you could turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 40. I remember um, going back several years now, thinking back to my college days, I remember there was one particular occasion that I had to go on a road trip with a group of buddies. And so we were um, going to be heading down to South Carolina. We were going to set off early in the morning. Um, so we had gathered at one of my friend's houses at about 2, 3, 4 in the morning. We were going to leave, try to drive straight through, meet up with some friends in South Carolina that next afternoon. It's about a 12 or 13 hour drive, so we were thinking we could make it in one shot uh, if we just took turns driving. And so I volunteered to take the first shift. I hopped in the car um, with, with my buddies. We started heading down, went through Milwaukee, down through Chicago, and we're on I-65 heading into Indianapolis, and about that time, my lack of sleep was starting to catch up with me. So I woke up my buddies, we pulled over, <clears throat> got some gas, uh, and I jumped into the back seat to take my rest as one of them began to drive for us. And so uh, if you've ever been in a car where you're trying to sleep, at least for me, there's something disorienting about that when you wake up, right? You, you, you go to sleep, it's not the most comfortable sleep you've ever had. You're, your face is pressed against probably a cold window. And so I remember waking up a couple hours later, looking down at my watch and seeing the time. And I remember thinking, awesome, man, we've, we've burned at least two, maybe two and a half hours since I went to sleep. And that's like extra time gained back when you can sleep in the car on a vacation. It's, that, it's as if that time that you were traveling while you're sleeping never actually happened. And in a very real sense, that was the truth of what had happened while I was sleeping, is that no actual travel had, been ta had actually taken place. Because when you're traveling through Indianapolis and you get off of I-65 South and you get onto, onto 465, 465 just circles the city of Indianapolis. 
And my friend, prior to GPS and not really knowing what he was doing, decided that he was just going to keep going until a sign made sense to him. And so despite all of the signs on the side of the road that indicated where he was, he had just circled the city. My estimation is that he had done that at least twice and possibly three times by the time I woke up. And when I woke up and looked around, I realized this is almost the exact spot where I had fallen asleep. So we pulled over and I volunteered to drive the rest of the way because I no longer trusted his judgment on much of anything. And I think if I hadn't woken up and pointed out where we were, he'd probably still be driving that track. But the truth is, until I pointed out to my friend how lost he was, he had no idea that there was anything wrong. Despite all signs and indicators and waymarks and all the points of recognition that he could have seen, None of that actually drew his attention to where he was or how lost he found himself. And in a very real way, the same thing is true of our spiritual lostness. And the story that's recorded for us in this text today is just such an example. For this whole last year, and it's been just over a year now, minus the break that we took when we were away for a couple months um, because of COVID, for about the last year, we've worked through the book of Mark, and continually, the question that has come back up, and you've heard us mention it on several occasions, is Mark has continued to ask this question to us, who is this Jesus? And he's trying to put a picture, an image, in front of you of who Jesus is so that you can have a true and deep and real understanding of who the living Son of God is. And in this text, we find Jesus' own answer to that question. We've been given pictures and glimpses and moments in which Jesus has given us snapshots of who he is, but this is actually Jesus extrapolating, exegeting, and exposing Scripture for us to reveal from the Word of God, from the Old Testament in particular, who He actually is. And this text is fascinating because if you remember where we've been for the last several weeks, the religious leaders have been coming up to Jesus. This has all happened in the course of about one day. They've all come to Jesus with various questions. They're trying to catch him in his words. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to make him look foolish. They're trying to get him to play his hand, to demonstrate that he's not actually this great prophet, this great preacher and teacher and rabbi and even the son of God. They're wanting to catch him in his words so that they can demonstrate to the people that this man is not all that he's cracked up to be. And in this passage, after neatly handling an onslaught of loaded questions from the religious leaders of the day, the Bible tells us that none of them dared ask Jesus any more questions. They came to him with the most, with the most obscure and in-depth questions they could think of, and he had so neatly handled them that nobody else wanted to ask him a thing. But interestingly, Jesus here is not finished. He's now made his way into the temple. This is the home court of the religious leaders. This is their home base. This is the place in which they live and work and play. And Jesus, in this moment, actually goes on the offensive. And the question that he's going to ask them is of such magnitude that it puts on display the foolishness of the questions that they had posed to him. And Jesus in this text takes, takes a position that the scribes and the Pharisees had assumed to be settled and true and solid, and he uses it to reveal their fundamental lack of understanding about anything relating to the Messiah. And so look with me, if you would, 
at verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, at first glance, that question actually sounds, it sounds backwards to us. It sounds like Jesus should be arguing the other point. But understand, Jesus' purpose here is actually not to go against this understanding that the scribes had. He was actually going to go on to affirm that the Messiah would indeed come from the line of David. But I want you to notice what's happening here. Jesus is actually in the temple. And he's about to publicly challenge the interpretation of the scribes. These people whose whole profession was interpreting the law of God. He was going to publicly challenge them and expose them for their hypocrisy. And he starts with this one common understanding. He starts with the thing that everyone knew to be true. Regardless of what you believed about any of the other portions of the Old Testament. The one thing that every Jew knew to be true was that the Messiah was going to come through the line of David. And in order to illustrate his point, Jesus points them to Psalm chapter 110. And in that psalm, it's revealed that the Messiah would be a physical descendant, a son, in other words, of King David. Now that in and of itself wasn't controversial. The Pharisees certainly believed that the Messiah was going to come through the line of David. There was all kinds of Old Testament passages that alluded to that same notion. I'll just read them for you. You can go back later and listen to the podcast if you want to read them on your own. But here they are. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 28 and 29. Psalm chapter 89 verses 3 and 4. Psalm 132 verse 11. Isaiah chapter 9 verses 2 through 7. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1. Jeremiah 23 5 through 6, Ezekiel 34 and 37. I mention all of those just to illustrate to you how firm and settled this was in the minds of the people who were there. They could point you to the scriptures that indicated that the Messiah, the one who was to, to release the people of God from oppression, was in fact going to come through the line of David. And in pointing this out, Jesus is subtly reminding them that he, in fact, is a descendant of David. Now Jesus is going to stop in this passage just short of calling himself the Messiah, but remember what was on everyone's mind as he spoke. Because if you go back just a chapter or two, you'll come across a story where Jesus is on his way to this very temple, and as he's on his way there to teach, he encounters blind Bartimaeus. And do you remember what Bartimaeus called out to Jesus as he walked by? O son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were there that day had most likely actually followed Jesus from that point of, of healing blind Bartimaeus and actually following him to the temple. And so as Jesus reads these words, very likely the name son of David is still on their minds. But Jesus goes even further. Verse 35, Jesus said, How can the scribes say that the Christ, that is the Messiah, is the son of David. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, and this comes from Psalm chapter 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? 
Now understand the question that, that Jesus is posing here. He's saying if you actually go back and read Psalm 110, where David, writing from the influence and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, literally writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit indwelling him and coming upon him to pen these words in his own language, in that moment, according to Jesus, David actually writes, The Lord said to my Lord, Come sit at my right hand. And the question that Jesus is asking is obvious once you understand what it is that he's actually saying, but it, it had never occurred to the scribes before. He's saying, how in the world could David have referred to the Messiah, the Christos, the one who was to set everything right, the one who was his physical descendant? How could he also refer to that son as Lord? No father, no father would call his son Lord, Master, particularly in this culture, where male headship was the common, expected, cultural norm. The idea that you would give deference to your father was, was as natural as anything else that existed in this culture. So the idea of a father referring to a descendant as Lord makes absolutely no sense. But then Jesus actually gives the answer that is found in Psalm 110. He gives the answer that the very scribes, the interpreters of the law, had no ability to actually see. And here's what Jesus points out. David wrote, the Lord, look at this language in your, in your Bibles, the Lord, that is the word Yahweh, says to my Lord, that is the word Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So he says, the Lord, Yahweh, that is the one true Jehovah, the one true God, the creator God of Israel, pre-existent and pre-eternal, the God who sits outside of time and controls everything, the God who is sovereign and who, is, who, who in his providence creates the world and everything that is dependent in it. That very God, the one true God creator says, and this is David speaking, says to my Lord, Adonai. That word means master. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And in that text, David writing in that passage is making clear that the one who is to be his descendant, the one who is to be his son, who is going to be the Lord, is more than just a mere man. See, Jesus in this text points out what all the scholars had missed. That in order for David to refer to his own descendant as Lord, the descendant couldn't just be a son. He must also be divine. And Jesus in this text reveals the beauty and the wonder of the incarnation. We actually sang and referenced the incarnation several times in today's service already, but when we use that word incarnation, literally the idea is incarnate, in the flesh, that God himself became man, that the God of the universe stepped into time, the very time that he had created, the very universe that he created, he actually physically stepped into it as man, that Jesus Christ, to spoil the ending, actually is 
God and is men. What Jesus is saying in this text is the only way that David could actually refer to his own descendant as Messiah, Lord, Christos, is if that man was not merely a man, but also God. And Jesus points out that David, writing through the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recognizes this coming Messiah as both his son and as the son of God. That there was something actually miraculous that was going to take place. That the one who was going to sit at the right hand of the throne of God was in fact the son of God and his own physical descendants. So for his part, Jesus in this moment is intimating that he in fact is the Messiah. See, the Pharisees, for their part, wouldn't have taken issue with Jesus over the fact that he was in David's lineage. Jesus' lineage was well established. People in this time knew who their family was. They could trace their family back for generation upon generation upon generation because who your, who your parentage was meant everything to these people. And so the Pharisees and the scribes, hearing Jesus and knowing that he actually was a physical descendant of David, they had no issue with that. But to claim that you are the Messiah, that's something different entirely. And as if that's not enough, Jesus in this moment actually adds a wrinkle to the understanding that the Pharisees and scribes had to begin with. That the very first prophetic piece that had to be in place was to be a descendant of David. And the Pharisees would have laughed anyone out of the room who claimed to be the Messiah who wasn't a physical descendant of David. But in this moment, Jesus is also saying that that son of David was also going to be the son of God. That's a whole different claim. And if you're wondering if this is in fact what Jesus is claiming about himself in this text... And some modern scholars would actually suggest that Jesus didn't know he was God. If you're wondering if Jesus actually understood what it was he was saying in this text, all you have to do is look forward a couple of chapters to when Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin. Because in Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 61, as Jesus is in that, that, sh that show trial, the high priest asked him, here's reading from Mark 14, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ? The Christos, the Messiah, the descendant of David, are you the Christ? And then he says this, are you the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus in his response to the high priest says, I am the son of David, I am the Son of the Blessed. He claims divinity, and he claims to be the rightful heir of David, all at once. And in prophetic language, Jesus in that text in Mark chapter 14 actually merges Psalm chapter 110 with Daniel chapter 7. He says, you will see the Son of Man. That language comes from the book of Daniel. It referenced once again the Messiah, the Christos, the one true Savior of the people. And then he says, you will see me seated at the right hand of power, referencing once again Psalm 110. Here's what Jesus is unequivocally saying, both in this text and in Mark 14. He's saying, I am the descendant of David. I am the Messiah, the Christos, the anointed one. I am the one who is David's Lord. I'm the one who exists pre-eternally and the one who has no end. I'm the one who sits on the throne of heaven and the one who will ret return again someday. And do you see, brothers and sisters, that this truth 
is the central claim of our faith. That God became man according to the prophecies. And what's interesting is once you start to see this truth play out, you see it all through the New Testament, especially in the writing of Paul. Paul, in several of his, uh, in several of his letters, begins with an introduction where he actually lays out this connection to who the God-man is. Here's how, here's how Paul himself states it in Romans chapter 1. He introduces himself as an apostle, quote, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, that is that is the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is Jesus asserting that he himself is that same Lord. And verse 37 ends by saying, and the great throng heard him gladly. Now these people are fickle. These same people who hear him gladly in this moment are likely many of the same people who are going to be shouting, crucify him just three days later. But they recognize in his words something that they've never heard for all of the time that they've been in synagogue. They've never heard the obvious connection that Jesus made in Psalm chapter 110. Jesus has this whole conversation publicly in the temple, in front of the people and in front of the Pharisees, and in doing so, Jesus is escalating his claims. So much so that nearly three days later, he's going to be crucified for what he said. And having made this claim here, Jesus now turns his criticism to the scribes. Now that seems to us like a non sequitur. We can't necessarily see the connection easily made, but we're going to see ultimately how these things fit together. Because notice then what Jesus says in his criticism, verse 38. And in his teaching, he said to the people, beware of the scribes. He's saying, beware of your teachers. In the modern context, it would be like Jesus getting up on a Sunday and saying, beware of your pastors. That's frightening language. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and they have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. These are texts that sober us. Both Matthew and Luke, in their discussion of this exact same story, reveal the longer text of Jesus' condemnation of the scribes. And in those texts, if you want to read them, Jesus goes on and on and on with his condemnation of the scribes. This is actually the abridged version that we get in the book of Mark, where he, where he lays out these criticisms. But here, ultimately, is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, be careful of listening to people about their, with their takes on God and their opinions on God based solely on their academic or religious bona fides. And there's a dangerous lesson in this text. The dangerous lesson is that the more exposure you have to the Word of God, the more responsible you will be to God for what you've heard. I want you to hear that. The more exposure you have to the Word of God, the more responsible you will be to God for what He says. 
So in the instruction on obedience to elders within a church context in Hebrews chapter 13, this is ultimately what the author of Hebrews says, uh, beginning in verse 17 of that chapter. He says this, he's speaking to the congregation, and he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. He's talking there about elders, pastors of the church, those who are, who are watching over your souls, and therefore there is a responsibility to submit and obey in those contexts. But then it says this, and notice these words, you're, you're to obey them as those who are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So, so here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, yes, yes, God places elders in the church to guide and to pastor and to lead. And yes, as members of the church, we are called to obey. But notice the additional standard that's placed on elders. They will have to give an account before God. That is scary language. That to have a mere academic understanding of who God is, to have an intellectual understanding of the Word of God, and to not believe it and know it, and likewise communicate it faithfully, is something for which people will stand before Almighty God. And conversely, to Hebrews chapter 13, in this passage, Jesus says to the people, and he says to you, beware of those who claim to be teachers of God. So we live in an amazing time. An amazing time. I mean, with a click, with a click of a button, we can subscribe to podcasts, and we have access to commentaries, and to devotionals, and to Bible studies, and to sermons, and to preachers not only from our own region and community, but from around the world. But all of that availability has also created an opportunity for self-serving charlatans to try to take advantage of well-intentioned people. So the call to us is to be a discerning and cautious people. To give close attention to both the teaching and the lives of those who claim to speak truth and to compare their words against scripture. And in this text, having just revealed the theological error of the scribes' teaching, Jesus now launches into a diatribe about their lifestyle. Do you understand that it's both and, not either or? You can't have great, faithful, biblical, godly teaching and be a charlatan who's trying to use ministry as a means of, advanc uh, of advancing your own purposes. That's the that's the, the comparison that Jesus is drawing out in this text. So notice the pattern of those about which Jesus warns. He gives us six indications in this text, and we'll just go through them one by one. First, notice this, they want to be noticed. They want to be noticed. It's, uh, Jesus says it this way. He says, they like to walk around in long robes. And here's what we know about the scribes at the time. They walk around in, around in these priestly garb. It was unmistakable. If you were to see them out in the middle of the community or out at a store, you would no doubt recognize them immediately because of the clothes that they were wearing. And as if their priestly garb wasn't enough, they would often attach bells to the very bottom of that garb so that as they walked around, they would literally jingle. They wanted to be noticed. They wanted to be seen. Two, they wanted to be recognized. 
Jesus says, they love greetings in the marketplace. And what he means is not simply that they enjoy when people say hello, but he's talking here about the honorifics that they received as they walked around in the marketplace, that people would approach them and would bow down to them, would kiss their hands. They wanted to be referred to by lofty titles. They wanted to be known as master or as lord. They wanted all of the honorifics that they felt they had deserved by virtue of their education and their position. Three, they wanted special privileges. Jesus says they like to have the best seats in the synagogue. And this is even more revealing once you understand how the synagogue was actually arranged. The seats in the synagogue were all arranged facing the front where there was a chest that held ancient scrolls. The word of God was actually physically held in that place. And so everybody would walk in and as you were going there to worship, you would sit down. You would be facing that chest at the very front of the room. But there were a limited few seats at the front of the room that actually were right next to the chest and faced outward toward the people. And so Jesus says these scribes love the fact that when they get to walk into synagogue, they walk past everybody with their jingling robes and the honorifics and people bowing, and then they take their, their favorite seats at the front of the room so that everybody knows who they are. Fourth, they wanted public honor. They wanted places of honor at feasts. And so with these magnificent feasts that would be thrown multiple times throughout the course of the year, most people would gather together. They might sit at tables or they might walk around and greet one another and eat. But there were, there were a few select spots that were reserved for the most famous and well-deserving people. Where those of honor and fame would recline while everybody else was standing. And those were the seats that the scribes wanted. Fifth, and this is maybe most startling. They wanted to be rich. Jesus says they devour widows' houses. I mean, this is artful language on Jesus' part. He doesn't just say they want to be rich. He specifies the means by which they become rich, namely that they took advantage of the people in that community who were most struggling. To be a widow at this time meant that you had no source of income. It meant that you were most likely being taken care of by your children. And if not by them, then by hopefully by the community itself, by the, by the gathering of God's people themselves. And he says these men make themselves rich by devouring widows' houses. They use their position to capitalize on the unsuspecting. Just like modern day scammers, they try to take advantage of the elderly. They tried to use their position to take advantage, literally, of little old widows. And sixth, they wanted to be well thought of. Jesus says, for a pretense, they make long prayers. In other words, they knew how to put their religion on display. They knew the things to say and how to say it. They knew all of the things that they needed to do in order to get affirmation from those that were gathered around them. And so they would pray these long, elaborate, emotional prayers. They would use lofty language to impress those who were listening. 
And so when you think through this list of what these scribes actually lived like and how they actually presented themselves, the question that comes up after hearing this list of criticisms is this. What do Jesus' claims about the deity and lordship of the Messiah have to do with these scribes? How are these two ideas connected? Because in our minds, they seem disparate. Well, Jesus here is pointing out that through their self-righteous charade, the scribes were attempting to steal the glory of God for themselves. In other words, they were using the worship of God as a pretense to sit on the throne of God. The throne that belonged to Jesus and Jesus alone. Do you understand, brother and sister, that this is the same temptation that sits in front of you and in front of me? And though we don't often think of our sin this way, do you realize that at its root, every sin that we might commit, every struggle, and uh, every temptation into which we might give, ultimately is a desire to sit on the throne of our own lives? It's a desire to tell God that we have no use for him, that we have no place for him, that we know better for ourselves what we ought to do and who we ought to be and what will bring us happiness and what will bring us satisfaction. And we see it as far back as the fall of Lucifer himself. Because in Isaiah chapter 14, as the prophet records for us the fall of Lucifer, here's what he says that Satan actually said while he was in the presence of God. I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. And of course, the response comes back from us, well, I would never say something so foolish. I would never declare that I'm going to be greater than God or that I'm going to be as great as God. But we notice then the very first sin recorded for us in Scripture. It takes humanity three chapters to get to the same place as Satan himself. Because do you remember that story? And do you remember ultimately the lie into which Adam and Eve bought? If you eat this fruit, you will be as God himself. And it's the same thing that you and I do when we try to live our own life by our own rules for our own happiness without recognizing, as David did, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Where we say to God in no uncertain terms, I know what will make me happy. And I know what the next steps in my life ought to be. And I know what brings me satisfaction. And I know what brings me meaning. And I don't care what you say about how I'm supposed to live or how I'm supposed to do it. And understand this, until the Holy Spirit illuminates our minds to recognize our own lostness, we will continue to drive by signs and drive by indicators without ever realizing how lost we truly are. So what then was the hope for Adam and Eve, for the hypocritical scribes, and for you and for me? 
The hope we have is in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Do you understand that Jesus was in every way the opposite of the scribes? Jesus didn't look to be noticed. But Isaiah tells us that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and he had no beauty that we should desire. He didn't look to be honored. He was despised and rejected by men. He wasn't looking to become rich. In fact, we're told that he didn't even have a place to lay his head. He wasn't using lofty words, but his simple message was a balm to the hearers. But as the God-man, Jesus accomplished for us, both for the hypocrite and the sinner, everything that was necessary for our redemption. That while we, through our sin, are trying to take his heavenly throne, he left heaven's throne and took our cross. That Jesus, the God-man, the one person who never deserved the penalty of death, took death for you and for me. That he paid the price that we deserved at the cross of Calvary. So the question we have to ask ourselves today is this. What do you know that you know. My guess is if we went around the room, we'd have all kinds of answers about the nature and the character of Jesus. And my guess is that by and large, we would get good, solid, theologically correct answers about the nature of Christ. That by and large, we would get good attestation as to who Jesus was and what he accomplished. And yes, he was born of the Virgin Mary, and he lived this particular way, and he didn't, he never sinned, and, and he went to the cross for us, and he rose from the dead, and we might give lip service to all of those ideas, but much like the scribes, we may give intellectual assent to the truth while never having experienced the reality of what it actually means. And something that struck me hard this week as I've thought about it is, do you understand what a dangerous position that is? I don't think we do. I don't think we have any idea what a terrifying position it is to be in, to hear the truth and to know the truth and to be able to even repeat the truth and not yet have accepted the truth. They will receive the greater condemnation. Do you understand that that doesn't just apply to the scribes? That as one author put it, you would be better off never darkening the door of a church again than to continue to attend and listen and hear and not believe. But if that's you, do you also understand that there is a specific and beautiful invitation for you? That this God-man is not far off and distant and unknown. That he broke into our world. That he defeated sin and death. That he went to the cross and that his life is recorded for us in this book. That the invitation to you is that you would believe. That you would receive him gladly. 
Jesus in this text is making it clear to us who he is, and he makes it clear that we'll be accountable for how we respond. So the invitation, brothers and sisters, is to see him afresh and anew for the God-man that he is, beautiful and loving and caring and sacrificial, yes, but also one who sits at the right hand of the throne of God. There is a good and right fear when we see God's power on display, but it's meant to drive us into his arms. Receive him for the beautiful, loving Savior that he is. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the description and for the exposition of your word that were given through the mouth of Jesus in this text. God, on one hand, we're encouraged to know that the scribes and the Pharisees and the, the educated and the academics could have studied your word for so long and still missed things. We're encouraged because there's so many things that we miss. And there's so many things that are hard for us to know or understand or believe. And yet, God, the beauty of what this text reveals to us is that ultimately it's the Holy Spirit himself that makes those things come alive and come real in our life. God, we are desperate for your Holy Spirit's intervention in our hearts and our minds. We understand and we confess that on our own we are unable and unwilling to see and to savor the beauty and the majesty of your love and your care and your grace for us. And so God, we ask that you would do what you need to do in our lives to reveal yourself to us. We pray that you'd be gracious in that process and that through it, many would come to know you and know you more deeply. So God, help us take these words seriously and help us to see them as an invitation from a gracious and loving and forbearing God. And it's in the beautiful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.